Terry Lineball wrote, Upon arriving in our new home in Kentucky, my seven-year-old son, Jason, decided to explore the neighborhood. He was back within the hour proclaiming that he had made some new friends. Good. Are they boys or girls? I asked. One is a boy and one is a girl, he replied. That's great. How old are they? Mom, that would be very rude to ask. Lineball said I was puzzled by his response, but about an hour later, Jason was back. Mom, he shouted through the screen door, I found out how old my new friends are. The girl is 65 and the boy is 70. <laughs> well, friends come in all shapes, sizes, ages, and varieties. Today, as we continue in our, our study of the Old Testament book of Job, we want to focus on being a friend to those who are encountering hardship. And we can make one of, of two responses toward friends who are hurting. The, the first is the wrong response. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were friends of Job's who, who came to try to make things better for him. And they ended up staying and making things worse. We all know some people who have that uncanny ability to say the wrong thing. And at times that can happen to any of us, but these guys did so consistently. What began as well-intended advice becomes destructive, painful, judgmental presumption of, of Job's guilt. Eliphaz is considered to be the oldest of the three, and, and as he spoke, he appealed to his experience for authority. He began in a courteous tone, but the problem was he didn't know how to help. He tells Job in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened tottering, uh, you have strengthened weak hands. Your, your words have helped the tottering to stand. You've strengthened feeble, weak knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It, it touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? And, and Eliphaz goes on to presume, Job, if you're going through a tough time, it's has to be because you've done something wrong. You're not right with God. Just confess your sin and everything will turn around in your life. His argument was that the righteous are never afflicted. Only the sinful suffer. But that was a flawed premise then and that still is a flawed premise for those who think that way now. It says in Job 4, 7 and 8, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you're getting your just desserts, Job. We don't know what's happened, but you have some secret sin, and it must be pretty heinous in order for, for this all to happen, all this calamity. So if you want to tell us what you've done, we'd be all ears. But uh, anyway, you're being punished by God, is what his friend said as they came to comfort him. It reminds me of a story in the ministry of Jesus. Back in, in John chapter 9, 
when Jesus and his disciples were, were walking into a village. Verse 1 says, as they went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man was born blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, you know, who's responsible? Uh, did he sin or his parents? Because obviously somebody has done something seriously wrong and is getting punished for it. That's still the typical human reaction 2,000 years later, isn't it? You know, the only exercise some people get is jumping to conclusions. You know, they, they can put two and two together and come up with 22. Uh, Eliphaz tells him, Job, if, if you're doing a good job of protecting your family and your children never would have been taken away from you. Uh, now, that's just cruel. Talk about kicking somebody when he's down. And Eliphaz is systematically destroying Job's hope. Eliphaz continues to assert God's holiness, but he's dead wrong in saying that Job cannot be trusted to be faithful. God himself had said that Job would not curse him, but that doesn't stop Eliphaz or his tirade. Chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. I bet at some point this summer you have sat around a fire pit or a campfire and you've listened to the crackle of the wood and you've watched those sparks ascend. And Eliphaz judges incorrectly. He says, Job, you have had some moral failure. Just admit it. Your trouble comes from within yourself. It comes from your sin, like a crackling campfire is sure to send its sparks heavenward. Until you come clean, you are in trouble. We know from chapter 1 that Job's suffering was not a punishment from God because of Job's sinfulness. And in fact, it was just the opposite. It was a testing from Satan because of Job's godliness. In chapter 5, Eliphaz continues comforting Job by telling him, Hey, you know, cheer up, Job. God is punishing you, but hey, smile. No pain, no gain. And not only is his theology misguided, but there's no compassion. There's no sensitivity for the suffering that Job is encountering. And Job appeals to his friends to, to show him some kindness. He, he recognizes that he needs their support. His message to them is, I need you on my team, not on my back. And in Job 6, he compares them to a wadi, W-A-D-I in the original language, uh, a dried up riverbed. He said, but my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by falling ice and are swollen with melting snow, but stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish 
from their channels. It's Job 6, 15 through 17. What he's saying is in, in the wintertime, the river is full of water, snow, and ice. But that's not when water from the riverbed is needed. It's in the summertime, during the tough time, the, the dry spell, that water is needed. And the problem with these wadis, these riverbeds, was that when the summer came, all their cool, refreshing water had evaporated. When it was needed the most, it was not there. Job says, I need your sustaining kindness the most right now while I'm dried up. Instead, you've left me parched. In other words, he's saying, with friends like these, who needs enemies? And the second, Bildad was no different than Eliphaz. Bildad was highly intelligent, a cold, calculated thinker, a skilled debater. He unknowingly became the devil's mouthpiece. His style was to frame questions and approach Job's problem with this precise, logical framework. Can God do wrong? Of course, the answer is no. But Bildad incorrectly surmised that because God can do nothing wrong and because God punishes sin, that therefore Job's tragedy must be the result of some hidden sin. His syllogism was flawed by incorrect premises. He was using faulty logic. Bildad kicks Joab, kicks Job when he's down and goes on to accuse in chapter 8. From outward appearances, Job, you, know, you had it all. Fame, fortune, family, but look at you now. It's all gone. And that's a sure sign that your faith was shallow and superficial. Was that true? Not at all. God said that Job was the most righteous man on earth. He was a man who feared the Lord and put his whole trust in God. Job's calamity does not seem to be the result of a faulty foundation. God allowed Satan to test Job and turn his whole world upside down. God will also permit that in our lives sometimes. Not necessarily because anything is wrong with our lives. It may be because of what is right in our lives. Sometimes friends genuinely mean well, and it just doesn't come out right. Like the joke about the man who had an upcoming trip, and he was afraid to fly in an airplane. And his, his friend tried to reassure him and comfort his, his nervous buddy. He said, hey, don't worry. Jesus said, I am with you always. The man, afraid of flying, reminded him, Let's quote the whole verse. Lo, I am with you always. Well, Jesus is the ultimate friend, and even our best friends on earth will disappoint us at times. But Jesus will never let you down. We've just unpacked the type of friend that we don't want to be. Going forward, let, let's study how to be a good friend to one who is hurting and, and in need. Let's shift gears and explore the right approach toward helping friends who are hurting. And they're around you. 
They're beside you. They're in your life. We all have some people we care about who are going through a difficult time. So let's be sure that we learn the lesson of Job's friends and that we provide the right approach. We're all familiar with the famous painting of the praying hands called Folded Hands. And when Albrecht Durer was a a poor struggling artist, a friend of his who also aspired to be an artist, made an agreement with Durer. The friend offered to, to do manual labor to earn their living while Durer studied and painted. And later it was planned that he should have his turn to paint, but when success came to Durer, his friend's hands had become so twisted and stiff that they could no longer paint. One day, seeing his friend's work-worn hands folded in prayer, Durer decided, I I can never give back the lost skill of those hands, but I can show my feelings of love and gratitude by painting his hands as they are now, folded in prayer to show my appreciation of a noble and unselfish character. Let me give you four practical take-homes to to demonstrate to your friends when they're going through a difficult time. The first truth is be there. When I began kindergarten at the Covedale Elementary School, my, my mother and my younger brother walked me to the nearby school located only a block from our home. And as the new kindergarten recruits and their mothers waited on the playground, for the beginning of this new life chapter called school to start. My mom tried to console my three-year-old brother, Dave, who was upset that I was going to school without him and that he would be home alone and wouldn't have anyone with whom to play. And at that very vulnerable, emotional moment of transition, an outspoken little girl from our church named Janice came skipping up and sarcastically taunted my brother, bet you wish you could go to school too. (laughs) Wrong thing to say, wrong time to say it. And Dave did what any conflicted three-year-old would do. He slugged her. I mean, he he dropped her to the ground. And, And although his response wasn't right, and although Janice's timing and comments could not have been worse, I wonder where Janice is now. I might have to, have to Google her, see if she still lives in Cincinnati. The, the whole disagreement centered on the fact that my brother wanted to be there. My, my definition of a friend is a friend is someone who walks in when everybody else walks out. That's tweetable. A friend is someone who walks in when everybody else walks out. There's that quality of availability. Be there. In order to be a friend to someone who is hurting, we must come alongside that person and his or her sorrow. That's what the word encouragement means. It it means to come along someone in need and to provide courage, help, lift, comfort, guidance. There's a proverb, Proverbs 18 24, which says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
although not always possible, there is a sense that being there, being physically present, strengthens our support and it magnifies our encouragement in an even greater way. In his book, Quality Friendship, author Gary Enrig writes, Out of the furnaces of war come many true stories of sacrificial friendship. One such story is of, of two friends in World War I who, who were inseparable. They had enlisted together, trained together, were shipped overseas together. They fought side by side in the trenches. And during an attack, one of the men was critically wounded in a field filled with barbed wire obstacles, and he was unable to crawl back to his foxhole. The entire area was under a withering enemy crossfire, and it would be suicidal to try to reach him. Yet his friend decided to try. Before he could get out of his own trench, the sergeant yanked him back inside and ordered him not to go. It's too late. You can't do him any good. You'll only get yourself killed. A few minutes later, when the officer had turned his back, instantly the man was gone after his friend. A few minutes later, he staggered back, mortally wounded, with his friend, now dead, in his arms. And the sergeant was both angry and deeply moved. What a waste, he blurted out. Now I've lost you both. He's dead and you're dying. It just wasn't worth it. With almost his last breath, the dying soldier replied, Oh, yes, it was, Sarge. When I got to him, the only thing he said was, I knew you'd come, Jim. Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. You can't phone in a hug. And one of the marks of a true friend is that he is there when there's every reason for him not to be. Be there. Your availability will speak volumes. The second take home I want you to write down is enter their pain. Eliphaz never did sympathize with Job or enter into his pain. His approach was so intellectual, so theological, so analytical. May we be ready to roll up our sleeves and get visceral about feeling what the hurt feelings are feeling. We don't have to condone wrongdoing to provide comfort, care, support to someone in need. Jesus lovingly reached out to the morally fallen, and he gained a platform to point them to a holy life. And we are to do the same. An important verse today is Galatians 6.2. It's bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When you help lift that load and enlighten someone else's insurmountable feeling burden, we're doing the Lord's work. We're fulfilling the law of Christ. We're, we're being Jesus to that person who is hurting and in need. You know, there's no special skill required to sit across the room and, and, and criticize and 
point out where another went wrong. Being a burden bearer means that we lift, that we share in shouldering the heavy weight of another person in hopes of lightening his or her burden and reducing that load that the other person is carrying alone. All nice and clean and cooled off by a swim in the ocean, Herman Trueblood saw a sweating man helped by his two sons trying on a hot day to push his disabled car up an incline. And he said two voices began yelling inside of him. You know, we, we've seen the cartoons with the, the angel on one shoulder and the, the devil on the other shoulder. And that's the tension he, he began to have, this internal dialogue. But one said, there's an opportunity for service. You ought to help them push. The other protested, that's none of your business. You'll only get yourself all hot and dirty again. Let them handle their own affair. He said, finally, he yielded to the better impulse. And he put his shoulder to the task. And together with the father and the sons, pushed and the car moved and it kept moving. And he said, a simple thing happened, which True Blood said, I, I never forgot. He said, when we were done, the, the father stuck out his dirty hand and True Blood stuck out his dirty hand. And the father said, I'm very glad you came along. You had just enough strength added to ours to make the thing go. True Blood said, years have passed since that hot day, but I can still hear the voice of that man in my mind saying, you had just enough strength added to ours to make the thing go. There, there are many thousands of people who are struggling to get some heavy load up over the hill. And you probably have just enough strength added to theirs to make the thing go. Third lesson is listen more, talk less. It was the Greek philosopher Zeno who observed, we've been given two ears and one mouth that we might listen more and talk less. And part of Job's suffering was inflicted by these friends who just went on and on with their rant. Without coming up for air, they seemed obsessed in showing Job the supposed error of his way. It says in James chapter 1, verse 19, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, listen more, slow to speak, talk less. To Job's friends, it was a slam dunk that Job obviously had some serious, unconfessed sin in his life, and, and they knew if he would just take responsibility for his supposed iniquity, that everything would return to normal. And that's how it appeared from a human perspective, but that was 100% false. When you're helping your friend, please don't try to explain everything. Don't spiritualize. Don't overanalyze what you think may be going on. That's so dangerous for us to, to try to do. 
And so usually the less said, the better. And the final assignment for us is to love unconditionally. The words of this old couplet capture the essence of that unconditional loving friendship. It reads, Oh, the immeasurable joy of being able to share freely with a friend without having to weigh my words, knowing he loves me and will blow away the chaff and keep the grain. A friend is someone who will understand and, and still love you, even when you say or, or do the wrong thing. He or she will gently guide and instruct and help you become all that you can be. There's another great proverb about friendship. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times. Back when George H.W. Bush was president, it was reported that he had visited a nursing home and the, the president shook hands and, and greeted an, an elderly resident there. He asked her, do you know who I am? No, she answered. Uh, but if you go to the front desk, they can tell you. <laughs> well, whether we are hasty, incorrect, forgetful, uh, a good friend loves us despite our imperfections. Someone put it like this. Real friends are those who, when you make a fool of yourself, don't think you've done a permanent job. To be a friend to someone who is hurting, you and I must look beyond that person's faults and see his or her needs. Isn't that what God has done for each of us? Do you know what was missing from all of Job's friends and what they had to say? God's love. There was no tenderness, no compassion. All they could see legalistically was a God of strict judgment, harsh ju justice, swift discipline, and severe condemnation. They held a very rigid view of God that allowed for no mercy or grace. If we're ever going to help those who are hurting, we need to emphasize God's love, tenderness, and mercy. Yes, God is a God of judgment, but he is also a God of love. And one without the other is not God. Half the truth, when it becomes the whole truth, and without it, we have no truth at all. Near the end of my dad's senior year at Ozark Christian College, a group of students had been studying together in the library, preparing for finals, and they began to walk across the campus. My dad was talking with one of the girls in the group, and as they cut through a building, they heard a curious sound. It sounded almost like typing coming from a, a vacant classroom. And they leaned inside, and in the classroom, tediously typing with one finger, using the hunt and peck method, was Marvin, a disabled student with cerebral palsy who was a fellow senior. They asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm working on this research paper, but it's going to take forever for me to type it. And the other student with my dad said, 
I'll type it for you. And when they went back outside the, the building, my dad reminded her, you have your own research papers to complete and type, and final exams are approaching, and you're getting married in, in two weeks. You don't have time to take on that task to help him. But she did take it on, and she didn't complain, and she got it all done. She was a burden bearer. And that's one of the reasons that two weeks later, my dad married her. <laughs> be a burden bearer. Be the right kind of friend. Lift the fallen. Help the hurting. Would you pray with me? Dear God, forgive us for those times when we default into the easier mode of being negative, critical, fault-finding, when we're judgmental and don't have all the facts. Lord, I, I pray that we would be the right type of friends, that we would learn from Job's friends what not to do, and that we would carry one another's burdens and, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Lord, help us to be alert this week, sensitive to those opportunities to uh, boost and, and bolster someone who's tired and feels like giving up, wants to quit, wants to cry, doesn't want to continue with life. Lord, I, I pray that we can, can be there and, and make an eternal difference uh, by our encouragement, by our presence. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.